Well, good afternoon. It's really tempting to say good morning, but I should say good afternoon. It's uh, really good to be back as well. Uh, after the two weeks of travel that Joanna and I went on, I just want to let you know that on those travels, we encountered so many people and a number of churches that are praying for us. Uh, and they are very, very, very attentive to what's going on. People continually write me on email and ask for updates about Covenant Hope Church, how they can pray for us, particularly in light of uh, the recent restrictions and our move here. I just want to say that, you know, I'm not sure what a pastor should think uh, when he goes away for two weeks and he comes back and the church has not only changed the place, but also the time. I don't know if there's a message there for me. Just kidding. Um, but I found my way here, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you all. Grateful for uh, this building. Grateful for UCCD and the other churches that uh, are in charge of the building and that are now accommodating, uh, like I mentioned in the pastoral prayer, over 20 churches now coming to this building. So um, we do know uh, God is sovereign, of course. I am so thankful for the elders uh, that I serve alongside in the church and who have shepherded you, I think, well over these last two weeks. Uh, in my absence, I haven't been able to be here to be with you all during this time, but I'm so grateful for them. Uh, I want to say thank you to them. And also to you all, I've been so encouraged as I talk with the elders, actually from, from a distance, to hear about how you're handling the changes and the disruption and relocation that uh, so many of you are trusting in the Lord, uh, you're looking to Him, you know He's sovereign, you know He has purposes in what's happening, uh, so thank you for that, and let's continue looking to Him for that. Um, I'm, I'm not hesitant to say, uh, I'm not hesitating to say that even though God is in control and He is sovereign and He has purposes for what's going on, that it is um, unfortunate that now churches will not be able to meet throughout the city. Uh, that, is, uh, that is unfortunate. And we, I think, should be praying that that would eventually be changed so that more people could hear the gospel in this city. I think that's uh, the way, normally, that cities are reached with the gospel. And this is a city of three million plus people. So it's challenging to think that all the evangelical churches for a city of three million people would meet in this one building. Well, let's pray that God makes a way and that God uses us for His purposes. Well, three weeks ago, we looked at the first 21 verses of chapter 8 in the book of Mark, Mark's gospel, which opens with Jesus standing in front of a hungry crowd of 4,000 people who have just listened to Him teach over the course of three straight days. And Jesus told His disciples at that point in time that He wanted to feed these 4,000 people. But surprisingly, His disciples do not see a way for this crowd to be fed with the few loaves of bread and the few small fish that they have with them, despite the fact that they had witnessed the feeding of a crowd that was much larger than this in the not-too-distant past. Well, still, Jesus turns seven loaves of bread and a few small fish 
into a satisfying meal for the entire crowd, despite what his disciples thought. And they get in the boat and they cross the lake. And when they get out, the Pharisees gather around them. And this encounter with the Pharisees that Jesus has, it's very brief, but it's very tense. Perhaps the most tense and angry encounter that he has with the Pharisees. And they're demanding a sign, a special sign from Jesus to prove his authority. Jesus refuses to give them that sign. He says a sign will not be given to this generation. And they get back in the boats. He gets back in the boats with the disciples, and they cross over the lake again. And as they're crossing the lake, Jesus warned his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. That is the yeast, the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. He sees the same unbelief and spiritual blindness operating in the heart of the disciples that are even in the Pharisees and in Herod. And so he's warned them. But the disciples don't understand the warning. They think that he's speaking to them about bread. So he challenges them with questions that sound more like what he would have asked the unbelieving crowds or the hostile religious leaders in the earlier pages of Mark. He says, for example, asks them, are your hearts hardened. He says, having ears, do you not hear? Now, they just watched Jesus open the ears of a deaf man, and he goes on to ask, have you eyes, but you do not see? And finally, he asks them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? Well, the disciples are struggling. They are struggling. That understanding that they don't have yet, that they seem so blind to, is to be now, in this passage, at least partially revealed to them. But first, Jesus will give them an object lesson about spiritual sight by restoring someone's physical sight. So our passage this morning is a very pivotal passage in the book of Mark. It acts actually as a hinge between the first eight chapters of Mark and the last eight chapters of Mark. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to begin with verse 22, Mark chapter 8. You'll be benefited if you'll turn there in a Bible and follow along with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 22 is where we're starting. Let me read that to you now. And we're going to go, we're going to go through uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him, home, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. 
and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see what you want to show us about yourself. Give us ears to hear what you want to tell us about the only way to eternal life. Lord, we need your miraculous touch to soften our hearts and give us understanding. Amen. Well, the main point or the big idea of these verses that we've just read is this. See and follow Jesus, our dying Savior and the coming King of glory. See and follow Jesus, our dying Savior and the coming King of glory. So we'll look first at verses 22 through 30, and then we'll look at the following verses after that. And these verses have two different scenes in them, verses 22 through 30, a healing first and then an important conversation in the second. But both scenes actually deal with blindness that gives way to sight. The first is a physical healing of blindness. The second is literally a spiritual healing of blindness. And so the first point of our outline this morning is see Jesus the Savior and King. See Jesus, the Savior and King. So Jesus has identified the fact that though the disciples have followed Him since the beginning of His ministry, they do not understand who He is. They've even been sent out to do the same kind of ministry that Jesus was doing, of preaching, of performing miracles. But His true identity is still hidden from them because of their hard hearts. They know He's accomplishing God's work. They know He's been sent from God. But who exactly is Jesus? They're confused. And so Jesus demonstrates physically what needs to happen for them spiritually. So look back with me at verse 22. It tells us that they arrive in their boats on the shores of Bethsaida, and the crowd brings a blind man to Jesus immediately. Jesus takes him by the hand, and he leads him outside the village. Now, it's hard to know exactly why Jesus 
took him outside the village. Perhaps he wanted to establish a more personal contact with the man. Of course, Jesus proceeds then to heal him. But the way he performs the healing is very significant, isn't it? It's very unusual. He puts spit on the man's eyes, and then he asks him, do you see anything? Well, the man says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. So he hasn't been healed of his blindness entirely. He's seeing very indistinct images. And so Jesus lays his hands on the man's eyes again, and this time... His eyes are opened, and he sees everything clearly. That's what it says in verse 25. And so then Jesus sends this man home, and he tells him, don't even go back into the village. Now, the biggest question that this miracle begs us to ask is, why did it take two touches from Jesus on this man to heal him? I mean, was it that Jesus' divine battery pack was running low on energy? I think not. I think not. No, Jesus does everything for a reason, and this was very purposeful. We've seen that Jesus' miracles have meaning beyond simply demonstrating the fact that He has this power or that power. No, each of those miracles has a deeper meaning. We've seen that throughout the book of Mark. His, His miracles illustrate spiritual truths, and the same is true here. Jesus knows that the disciples are only seeing who He is, His identity, in a vague and unclear way. And just like the man could only see partially with the first touch of Jesus, he needed a second touch, and so do the disciples. Now, all of us in the room who need glasses or contacts know what it's like to only see vague shapes instead of words or faces or pictures. So if I take off my glasses, actually, I cannot read another word on this sheet of paper. Uh, I, I couldn't continue it. I have to continue by memory at this point. I put them on. About the age of uh, 40, my eyesight began to deteriorate. I began to squint when I was looking at computer screens. I couldn't see the words I couldn't see the time on my wristwatch very well or the sentences on the page of a book. And my my kids would hold something up in front of me. They'd say, Dad, Dad, look at this, you know, and I, I would constantly push it away from me so that it was farther away. I needed it to be farther away in order to see it. Otherwise, it was blurry. I couldn't make it out. But, but my glasses, they change everything. So when I put them on, the words become clear and I can recognize who you are. The disciples need spiritual glasses that only Jesus can give them. So like the blind man after the first touch, they need that second touch from Jesus to give them a clear understanding of Jesus' identity. They need to see Jesus as the Savior and as the King They they need to see Him as the man sent from God to rescue and lead His people. And so Jesus is going to bring them to a point of decision about who He is. So look with me then at verse 27. There in verse 27, we see that Jesus leads His disciples on a tour of the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now that would have been farther north of the Sea of Galilee. And on the way, (coughs) excuse me, He asks them, who do people say that I am? 
Well, they've heard from the various people in the crowds that they've experienced and they've been with on the various ministry adventures that Jesus has taken them on. And uh, they recount three different identities that people are concluding about Jesus. One, that Jesus might be John the Baptist, which of course would have meant that he's John the Baptist come back from the dead because John the Baptist had been beheaded by King Herod. Or they say, we think maybe he's Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Elijah had lived about 900 years before the time of Jesus, and Elijah had been miraculously taken up into heaven rather than dying a, a natural death. The Scriptures also spoke about Elijah coming back, and so it's, it might have been natural that the crowds would have thought that Jesus might have been Elijah come back. Or people in the crowd think that Jesus is simply a prophet, like a prophet of old, someone sent by God to speak to the people, to give them the messages from God that they need to hear. But Jesus pressed them with an even more personal question. He says, who do you say that I am? Now, up to now in Mark's Gospels, uh, we've actually not heard from the disciples individually. We know that Jesus called them individually in the very beginning, and we hear the names of them, Peter and John and James and Andrew, names like that, but we never hear them speak individually, but now we do. One particular disciple is identified as responding, it's Peter, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, you should know what Christ means. Christ means anointed one, anointed one. It's, it's a, a, a Greek word, and it's the Greek language version of the word Messiah. So, we could use those two words interchangeably, Christ or Messiah. And that title hasn't been mentioned in the book of Mark since the very first line in the book of Mark, until now. It's not been mentioned. And it's as if Mark wants his readers to come to the conclusion of who Jesus is simply from listening to Jesus speak and seeing Him act in history from Mark's recounting of what happened. It's as if Mark, Mark doesn't want to tell us who He is. He wants us to come to that conclusion ourselves. Well, now that Peter has identified Jesus as the Christ, that word, Christ, is going to be repeated many more times from this point on to the end of the Gospel of Mark. It's out. The news is out, at least among the disciples. Jesus is the Christ. The Jewish people, you should know, saw that in the Old Testament Scriptures, God had repeated a promise that an anointed one would come one day to rescue and lead His people, the people of Israel. And they had waited and waited, and waited. And Peter is declaring that the Christ is finally here. And so we see in verse 30 that Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one about Him. He, he wants people in His ministry in that day to come to their own conclusions about His identity. And in saying, in strictly charging them to tell no one about them and this title, we know that Jesus is affirming what Peter has said. The disciples, led by Peter, are finally seeing clearly like the blind man that's been touched twice by Jesus. 
you know, even in today's world, there are still many, many different opinions about who Jesus was or is. Our Muslim friends, of course, would say that Jesus was simply a prophet sent by God, but a prophet who was actually no better or no, no different, no, not particularly different than any of the other prophets who had preceded him. Now, those of you who aren't Christians who are here today, how would you answer Jesus' question? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's a question of immense importance. What reasons do you have for the conclusions that you've reached about Jesus? Have you read the gospel accounts for yourself? Have you, have you given him serious consideration? You know, there's a common idea among people that Jesus was probably a sort of a spiritual guru who taught people how to be good. He was a teacher of morality. There's a theologian that many of you may know named C.S. Lewis, and he rejects that possibility in his book called Mere Christianity. He says this, listen closely. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. He's either a lunatic, or he's a liar, or he's the Lord and the King of all. If you've been following along in this sermon series in the book of Mark, you would have seen Jesus speak and act in ways that no great moral teacher would. None. Jesus has done every kind of miraculous healing that seems possible. He's made paralyzed people walk. He's taken shriveled limbs and restored them. He's caused leprosy to disappear. He's opened up deaf ears. He's opened up blind eyes. He controls the weather. He's calmed storms. He's walked on the water. He's raised dead people to life again. He commands the forces of Satan. He tells demons to go here and go there, and they must obey Him. And at in His words, oh, His words, He speaks as one who has authority. It's as if His words are equal to Scripture. He says even, I'm Lord of the Sabbath day. He claims to have the power to forgive sin, something that only God can do. Oh, oh, and this Jesus, He's full of love and compassion. He never has tired of showing kindness and mercy to those who've needed it. 
He touches those who've never been touched before. He welcomes sinners who have been written off as hopeless by everyone else. Who do you say that Jesus is? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we gather as a church every week to declare together to ourselves and to the watching world that Jesus is the Christ. We too say that. We follow in the footsteps of Peter as Christians. Christians are people who down through the centuries have all come to that conclusion, that very same conclusion about Jesus. Jesus' identity is the anointed one. But what is the Messiah's mission? And what does it mean for us that Jesus is the Christ? Well, that brings us to the second half of our passage this morning, which begins in verse 31. And the second point that I'll make this morning is this. Follow Jesus through death to glory. Follow Jesus through death to glory. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. There's an immediate and significant shift in Jesus' teaching to His disciples. It says, And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And He said this plainly. Jesus has only given us small hints about His mission up to this point. He's been announcing the nearness of the kingdom of God. He's called people to repent of their sin and to believe that God's kingdom is breaking into this world in a way that unlike it ever has in the past. But you should understand that Jesus' teaching that the Christ would suffer and be killed and rise again would be shocking to the disciples. It would absolutely shock them. Now, if you're a Christian, you, you perhaps grew up hearing Jesus suffered, Jesus died, Jesus rose from the grave. That's, you know that about Jesus. But this would absolutely floor the disciples when they heard this. Their expectation was that the Messiah, the Christ, would come and conquer Israel's enemies and then reign victorious over his kingdom. Suffering and death were not a part of the plan that they understood for the Messiah. So if you're a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible, you might say to yourself or to me, but what about all those blood sacrifices in the Old Testament? Don't they point to Jesus' suffering and death? And what about the Passover lamb whose blood was wiped above every Israelite's door back in the book of Exodus that prevented their firstborn from being killed by the angel of the Lord? Or what about those prophecies in Isaiah about the suffering servant of the Lord who would take the punishment of the people on himself? Aren't those there in the Old Testament, Brian? Doesn't it all point towards Jesus and his suffering and his death and his resurrection? Yes, it does. All those things are there. In fact, Jesus would later tell His disciples after His resurrection that the entire Old Testament was about Him, about His plan to suffer and die for the sins of the people and later be raised. But it wasn't clear to them. It's clear to us because we stand on this side of the cross 
We stand on this side of the cross and we look through it back at the Old Testament. We have the apostles' interpretation and explanations in the New Testament. They did not have that. Their Bible ended with the book of Malachi. And so every Christian now is filled with the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit who gives insight and understanding in a way unlike what they had. The Spirit had not been given to people in a way that it has been now. That doesn't happen until the book of Acts. And so we need to be generous when we look back at the disciples and the fact that they didn't understand. So it's not simply a matter of information or facts. The Scriptures which are inspired by the Holy Spirit must be spiritually discerned. So that's the reason why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So everything that's written in the New Testament was revealed to those apostles through the Spirit. And Paul speaks repeatedly in Ephesians, for example, about how in Christ mysteries have been revealed. So the disciples were shocked at Jesus' teaching about His suffering and death, so much so that Peter thought that it was necessary to correct Jesus. Look back at verse 32. <laughs> and He said this plainly. Jesus said these things plainly. And then Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. But turning and see his, seeing His disciples, He rebuked Peter and said, "'Get behind Me, Satan!' For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. <laughs> oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. As much as Peter gets it right about Jesus' identity, he gets it horribly wrong concerning the mission of the Christ. Peter is rebuking the Messiah. And Jesus won't let it stand. No, it's that important. It's that important that Peter and the disciples understand that his rejection, his suffering, and his death, they're, they're, they're going to be essential parts of his mission as the Christ. So Peter's not just slightly wrong to suggest that the Messiah not suffer and die. In fact, it's actually a suggestion that's really birthed in the heart of Satan. Now, you should understand that Jesus isn't saying that Peter has literally become Satan or Peter is possessed by Satan or anything at, like that at this point necessarily. No, he's saying that the, the idea that the Christ should not suffer and die is a satanic idea. It's a satanic idea because Satan would love nothing better than for Jesus to, to not go to the cross to pay for the sins of the people who would trust in Him. Satan would love that. If Jesus skips that part of His mission, then no one would be saved and all of us would be judged and condemned by God on the day of judgment. We'd have no hope. That's what Satan wants. That's what he's always wanted. So just as Jesus had accused the Pharisees of keeping the traditions of man and ignoring the commandments of God, do you remember that from chapter 7? Jesus tells Peter that he's doing the same thing. He's 
thinking the thoughts of man, not the thoughts of God. You know, it's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, and it's another thing to understand His mission and plan and how it affects us. We're just like Peter, aren't we? We're just like Him. We have a sinful tendency to imagine God the way we want Him to be, to give Him our plan for Him. We want to set His agenda, tell Him what His plan should be. Instead, we must continually let God tell us who He is and what He expects of us. We do that, of course, by listening to His Word. That's how we do it. We, we, by letting God's Word, the Bible, correct our thinking day in and day out, week in and week out. I wonder, how often do you read the Scripture simply looking for inspiration rather than asking God to let Him correct and reset your thinking? That's the difference between searching the Bible for something that's, that simply affirms us in our own plans versus sitting under Scripture's authority. One way that you can do that is to read the whole Bible. Make sure that you read the whole thing, not just the parts that you like to read, not just Philippians 4.13. As a church, we open up the Bible every week when we gather. And eventually, we will read through Old Testament books and study them, books like Numbers and Leviticus. That's God's Word. We'll, we'll not want to skip over the parts of the Bible that make us uncomfortable, and you shouldn't either. I want to ask you, are you reading the books of prophecy in the Old Testament? They're hard to digest at points. They seem harsh, but it's important that we let God tell us who He is and what His mission is in His Word, and that we not tell Him what we want Him to do. That's why our sermons every week should be expositional on the whole. Occasionally, we might do a topical sermon here at Covenant Hope Church, but we want every week for the main point of the sermon to actually come out of the main point of the Bible passage. We do that as a church because we want God's Word to teach us. We want it to correct us. We want it to form our thinking about God and about ourselves and about how we should live our lives. Now, Jesus rebukes Peter because he loves him. You should know that. And he wants him to know the truth. And this is a critical moment, a very crucial moment, where Jesus then gathers the crowd and his disciples together and he teaches them what it means for them that they are following the Christ who will suffer first and be, and, and be killed and then raised to new life. So look back with me at verse 34. We're going to read this again because these are crucial, crucial verses. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. There's four things that I want us to learn from these verses, the end of our passage this morning. The first thing is, Christians follow Jesus. Christians follow Jesus. It may sound simple, sound basic. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me. Following involves movement, it involves action, it involves decisions, it involves direction. So being a Christian doesn't simply involve a once-in-a-lifetime decision to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's far more than that. It changes the way we live our lives. It changes the way we think about everything, about what is of value to us, about money, about friendship, about sex, about work, about marriage, about family, about time, about politics, recreation, and rest. All those things we think of differently when we follow Jesus. In all the aspects of our life, we want to follow Him. Are you following Jesus? Secondly, we must deny ourselves in order to follow Jesus. We must deny ourselves in order to follow Jesus. Jesus came to die and then be raised to new life and then obtain the glory of His Father in heaven. And if we follow Him, we walk the same path that He walked. And for us, that means we, at least, must set aside our own self-centeredness, our own plans for ourselves, and we submit to God's plans for us. When Jesus says that we must take up our cross... He's not saying that we will necessarily each be crucified. (laughs) Some Christians, of course, will be literally martyred. They were, and they still are today in many places around the world. But every Christian denies themselves and takes up their cross when they reject living for themselves and they begin living for Christ and His purposes. That's what denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Him means. You're not a Christian if you haven't said to Christ, I no longer want to live for myself, I want to live for you, Jesus. Are you regularly asking Jesus, Lord, what does it mean for me to deny myself and live for you in this stage or this circumstance that I find myself in in life? How do I deny myself? How do I carry that cross? And you should know as well, it's really not an appropriate way to understand this phrase, carry your cross, to say that a problem that you have is your cross to bear. That's not really what Jesus means here. Jesus is speaking about death, not just a burden or a difficulty that you're encountering. The third thing that we see from these verses is we gain everlasting life by following Jesus. We gain everlasting life by following Jesus. In verse Verses 35 through 37, Jesus explains what's at stake in the decision of whether or not to follow him or not. 
it's not just a better life. It's eternal life or eternal death. It's a stark contrast. Look at verse 36 first, actually. Jesus is using the word soul and life interchangeably in these verses. He says, you could gain the whole world, but if you lose your soul, you've lost everything. You've lost it all. He's teaching us that there is nothing more valuable than your soul. There's nothing more valuable than that. And because of the sin that's in our lives, we are in danger of losing our souls. We all stand condemned before God. Look at page 6 again in your bulletin, if you have that in front of you. This is just a, a simple recounting of the gospel that we read together earlier. Look, look back at starting with that second paragraph where it says, each of us. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking His law and rebelling against His rule, and the penalty for our sin is death and hell. That's losing your soul. But because of His love, God sent His Son, Jesus, to live for His people's sake, the perfect, obedient life that God requires, and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. On the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave, and He now reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in Him for salvation. That is the good news. That's the gospel. Our souls can be saved. Though we will die, we can be raised to new life like Jesus if we follow Him. If we follow Him. Many of you may know Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who was trying to reach the tribes in Ecuador, but who was killed by those very same tribes that he was trying to reach with the gospel. He famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jimmy Elliott was teaching the same thing that Jesus was teaching here. If you try to keep your life, if you reject Jesus and you go your own way, you'll lose your life. But if you try to lose your life for Christ and His gospel message, you'll gain your life. Everlasting life, in fact. Jesus is saying, make your choice. Everyone has a choice. Die to yourself now and gain everlasting life in Christ. Or live for yourself now and experience everlasting death later. What choice have you made? Well, the fourth thing from these verses that I want you to see is that how we respond to Jesus in this life will determine how Jesus responds to us at the judgment. How we respond to Jesus in this life will determine how Jesus responds to us at the judgment. Look at verse 38 with me. 
It's a revelation from Jesus that He will one day come again as the glorious King and Judge that the disciples expected of the Christ. <laughs> so he's not, he's not denying what the disciples thought the Christ would do. Christ will eventually do that. Now, Jesus doesn't specifically say the word judge here in verse 38, for example, but it's clearly implied. This is, there's the idea here that the Son of Man would come and He would be ashamed of some people, and that implies authority and judgment. And who has just pulled Jesus aside and rebuked Him for saying that the Christ must suffer and die? Peter has. Peter, Peter was ashamed of the kind of Christ that Jesus was describing to them. And Jesus is saying, that is not acceptable. This was a great warning to Peter and to us. To reject the Jesus who suffered and died and to turn down what He offers in the gospel is to be ashamed of Him. On that day of judgment when Jesus comes in glory with the armies of angels, there will only be two kinds of people. Those who were honored and thankful to give up their lives and follow Him and those who were ashamed of Him and His words. Only two kinds of people. Friends, weigh up these words of Jesus carefully. Weigh them up. Do, the, do these sound like the words of simply a moral teacher? Someone who says, when I come in the glory of my Father with the armies of angels? This warning should sober us. It would be the greatest loss to have Jesus return and to be ashamed of us because we dismissed Him. He would be right to judge us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this warning for those ashamed of Jesus also hints at a great hope for us. If we've chosen to deny ourselves and to take up the shame of the cross now, we will share in His glory when He comes again. We will share in that glory. The disciples wanted glory. You and I were designed for glory. They wanted Christ who would be, they wanted a Christ who would be victorious over their enemies. And what they didn't realize was that their greatest enemy was sin. Jesus' victory had to take place on the cross and not the battlefield. That was how the Christ would save them. The passage here describes the essence of what it means to be a Christian. We see Jesus, and we confess Him as Savior and King, and we follow Him through death to glory. Are you following Him, or are you ashamed of Him? Turn with me to page 13 in your bulletin. The last verse of our last song says, Oh, to see my name written in His wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. 
This is what Jesus came for, to crush death and to offer life. Let's follow Him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You that You sent Your Son, Jesus, and that He was not deterred or distracted or put off course by the suggestions that He avoid the suffering and the cross. But in fact, He went to the cross, and He paid for our sins there that we might be reconciled to You, that we might experience the glory of You and the Son. We praise You for that great offer that the gospel extends to us. In Christ's name, amen.